We welcome again to our pulpit Dr. Bill Schweitzer. I'm really delighted to have the, the opportunity, even though it's been minimal, to be around Dr. Schweitzer on this trip. Uh, among other things, uh, Bill is a, is a Jonathan Edwards scholar, and uh, we just have a great deal in common, uh, many common interests. But as he comes this evening, he's going to be expounding this text that is the theme of our conference. And this is a, a very, very pertinent issue before us. What is the mission of the church? We're clearly told in scripture, as we heard this morning, what are the appointed means to accomplish that mission? Well, we know what those are. He mentioned them this morning, word and sacrament, and we hear more about that this evening. May the Lord bless you with the uh, the spirit that was poured out upon his church at Pentecost and the proclaiming of his word, brother. Bless you. Well, as our dear brother mentioned, this morning we spoke on Matthew 28 and the mission of the church. And there are some reference to means, because these things work together. Uh, If you have a particular mission, it is the reality that you're going to use means that are suited to that mission. If indeed our mission was, for instance, to transform the culture, we'd have means like social action and and large-scale economic development projects and, and those sorts of things that would be necessary to bring about the desired end the mission. And if indeed our mission is to make disciples, we have means that are perfectly suited to that. And we mentioned what those are. We mentioned the word and sacrament. Tonight we'd also mention prayer in our uh, confession and catechisms. It mentions actually three means of grace. Uh, Of course, the particular aspects of it, which are, are, you can see in action, you can hear the Word of God being preached, and you can see and you can taste the, the sacrament being administered rightly. But behind it all, of course, is prayer, because I don't want us to lo- lose sight of that. If there's anything that you can possibly get from tonight's sermon, if there's one thing that I want you to understand, is that the, word, the means of grace, the Word and sacrament, they don't work automatically. We are not like the Roman Catholics and their idea of the sacraments that works ex, work ex opere operato. It means by themselves, they, they operate. They, by their mere operation, they, they work. That is not what we have in mind when we think of the ordinary means of grace. Just simply preaching and just simply administering the sacraments, that's not enough. God has to be in it. The sovereign God of the universe has to reach down with His power through the Holy Spirit, to make them efficacious. And for that reason, prayer is central. Now, you probably know that Acts is the second half of Luke's great two-part work. And if you were going through the Gospel of Luke, or indeed any of the Gospels, you would be coming to the point at which you saw the sad story of Peter's denial. And you would be wondering how that story ended. And you cannot be amazed then by what happens in Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost when this weak man is empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what his Lord has called him to do. But of course it's not just Peter. It's not just one man. This is the story of the fulfillment 
of the promised sending of the Holy Spirit and of the, the, the working of those means of grace, that mission of the church that was given in the Great Commission. Jesus tells them to go make disciples, and that is exactly what we see happening in Acts chapter 2. The, the apostles, however much they might be sinners, however weak they might be, are obedient to the call. And God uses those things to bring into existence by the preaching of the gospel and by baptism, the church. All is empowered by the Spirit. And we have this amazing chapter ending with the words which are a theme verse. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, isn't that what every true child of God wants to see? Isn't that what we want to see in every church that we're part of? And every church we send, every church that we pray for, don't we want to see that? Daily, the Lord adding to our number those who are being saved. We know that the Lord has promised that He was going to build His church. He says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We know that there's no power on earth, no power anywhere, no power in hell that can possibly prevent God from building His church. We know it's going to work. But we all want to see that happen. And the question is, how exactly? What model is it? What is the situation of ministry in a church that we can expect that God is going to bless? Because that's what we want. That's the model we want to copy. We don't care about contemporary models of reported success here and there. That's not what we're, we're overly concerned about. As we send missionaries and as we go as missionaries, what we're concerned about is what the Lord is bringing to our attention as the model that He is going to bless. And we cannot but notice, we cannot but mention that this is a church that began with a word in the sacrament. That is how the church came to be in the first place. We see that this is a church that began with the word in sacrament. And then we also see it is a church that continued steadfastly in those very same things. They began with the word and they continued steadfastly in it. They began with baptism, they continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. And there was fruit from it. How was it that the Lord was adding to the church daily those who were being saved? It was because his servants were being obedient, undertaking his mission, using the means that he designed. One more thing. They were not doing this on their own. Let's not forget about the Holy Spirit. As at the beginning of this chapter, in Acts chapter 2, verses 4, we reminded they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the context here. When we understand what happens later, when we understand how it was that a, a man such as Peter could stand up and preach the sermon that he did, we have to understand that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we see that those, those people, those disciples, were continuing on in the, the, the doctrine of the apostles, continuing on in the breaking of bread, and that God was adding to their number, we see that the Holy Spirit was at work in these things. Means of grace do not work on their own. In fact, there is no other explanation for the fact that they work other than the Holy Spirit sovereignly takes hold and makes them to work. Think about how radically countercultural that message was that Peter preached. There's not a single thing about it that was going to affirm them and where they were. 
It was extremely uncomfortable, countercultural. How do we explain then that 3,000 were added to their number? How? Because the Holy Spirit, who is able to make order out of chaos, the Holy Spirit, who is able to make a man like Peter stand up and preach the truth, the Holy Spirit worked. That's how we explain it. So we know the mission of the church. We should make disciples. And now, more specifically tonight, we think of this how-to, planting churches and building churches that carry out the Great Commission through the ordinary means of grace. Well, there's nothing amazing about this sermon. There's three points. We start with the ordinary means. Second, we continue with the ordinary means. And third, ordinarily, God will bless with fruit. So our first point is, Start with the ordinary means. We read in verse 41, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. To summarize what happened on Pentecost, if you want to know what happened there, it's that there was gospel preaching, there were baptisms, and under the power of God's Spirit, there was a church. That's how it happened. If there were no gospel preaching, there would be no baptisms. And if there were no baptisms, without baptized Christians, there would be no church. Again, that is the entry sacrament into this church. Whenever we're thinking about the means and methods that we want to adopt, whenever we are evaluating some model that has come to us, that has been recommended, here's a good idea if you want to grow your church, we need to remember one thing, that the church first came into existence through the Word and through the sacraments. These are the very things that were specified to us in the Great Commission. It's a beautiful thing, the way that the Word of God is, is uh, constructed, that at the end of the Gospels we have the, the specification. Here's the mission. I want you to go make disciples, and here are the means, Word and sacrament. And there in Acts chapter 2, we immediately see these things in operation. It's not that there's a disjuncture between these two things. It's not that, that, uh, that Matthew 28 says one thing and we see something completely different operating in Acts chapter 2. It's that we see exactly what was specified, exactly what was told to happen. They did it and God blessed it. And in particular, we would say that this, is, this message, the way that the word was preached, it was the unvarnished word. It was the whole counsel of God. Just consider that sermon. I won't read it all, but just consider that sermon that Peter preached, beginning in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Ladies and gentlemen, I would have to say that rather than being calculated to affirm as much as is possible in the culture, rather than being calculated to affirm as much as is possible in the audience in front of them, this this sermon seems almost calculated to do the very opposite. It seems calculated to offend the very point at which they were most sensitive that their participation in the crucifixion of the Lord, that was the very point that Peter wants to drive home. 
How do we say it works then? Well, again, if it were man's means, we'd have to say it doesn't make any sense at all. If you're trying to sell cars, you would find whatever that person wants to hear and you would go with that as much as possible. If you're selling shoes, you would look for whatever that person wants and you would affirm that and as much as possible. But you're doing neither of these things. All the Lord is asking the church to do is to proclaim His Word. And He's going to do it. In fact, He's going to make sure that He gets the glory. So he's, maybe he's going to give us a message that is very countercultural. Maybe he's going to give us a message that is in opposition to our predilections. So that when people come to Christ, everyone knows who did it. That message that was preached was the unvarnished word. And that, you see, is the right way to begin. You could imagine other ways for the church to begin. We could imagine starting today a church, all sorts of new measures that we might, we might think. And I, look, I, would, I could understand that were we to do these things, we could bring people into the church. But maybe you've heard the quote by James Montgomery Boyce, what do you win them by, you win them too. Have you heard that quote? What you win them by, you win them too. So, uh, for instance, I, I heard of recently a church that was uh, uh, wanting people to come for a certain service, and they were raffling, or no, they, they had a lottery for a car. So everyone that came through, they gave a ticket, and people came. But they didn't come for the Lord Jesus Christ. They came for the car. And what you bring them by, what you win them by, is what you win them to. And when you bring them by some other means other than the word and sacrament, you, the only thing you can be sure of, you can't be sure at all that you've won them to Christ. You can only be sure that you've won them to the car or whatever it else that you brought them by. And moreover, they're only going to stay on that basis. You're now stuck. If you've used some sort of gimmick, if you've used some sort of new measures to bring them in, you are stuck. Because you can be pretty sure that if you suddenly and radically change course from something, come for a car, and then you preach some radically countercultural message that is going to, to get them at the very spot that they're most sensitive, if you're going to be using the word and sacrament that the world thinks is foolishness, preaching the cross, the penal substitutionary atonement, the blood of Christ, you know what's going to happen, right? They're just going to walk right out the same way they came. You're stuck. If that's the way you start. So, that was the right way for them to begin. Now, you cannot, you cannot guarantee that simply because you begin well that you're going to end well. But let me say, if you don't, end, if you don't begin well, you're guaranteed not to end well. Well, the church began with the word and sacrament. But our second point is to notice that they continued with these things. In verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers. What a beautiful picture of this infant church being obedient, doing what they're supposed to, doing what God would have them do in order to, to grow and to be built up. You see, God knows what we need. God knows what His people need, and He gives it to them. What is it that He told Peter when He restored Peter in the Gospel of John? Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Third time, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. 
And Peter, even there, he, make, he, he makes a mistake just for a moment. He says, well, what about that man? And the Lord says, what is it to you? I want you to feed my sheep. And you know what? The same God who designed us, the same God who created us, His sheep, He knows precisely the food that we need. And He gives that then to His apostles. He gives that to His elders, teachers, that they might give to God's people that they would grow. They were continuing steadfastly. And that's a single word in Greek. It's translated as devoted themselves in the ESV. We've got it, I think, 11 times in the New Testament. And five of those times it's used about God's people devoting themselves to prayer. As with in Acts 1.14, they all continued in one accord in prayer and supplications. And another of these times we see it's both prayer and the Word of God in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now that, by the way, if you want to know a strategy for church growth, let me tell you, the strategy given in Acts chapter 6 is a wonderful one. The problem was that the apostles were getting involved in tables, in serving tables for the widows. The solution was to appoint deacons. Why? Because they wanted to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. What's the result of these things? The result is the Word of God multiplied. Do you see the cause and effect there? It's when the ordained servants of God give themselves over to the things that they're called to do. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. The expected result is the Word of God is going to multiply. Well, getting back to our point, they were continuing with the ordinary means. They were continuing steadfastly in these things. And in the Apostles' Doctrine... You know, that's the first thing. It's before breaking of bread because the, the Word of God has pride of place. It's what informs the other things. We never uh, administer the sacraments in isolation from the Word because the Word is what gives meaning to those sacraments. Now, the very Word here reminds us that the ministry of the Word includes doctrinal preaching. It, it continued in the doctrine of the apostles. Now, those who have no use for theology and preaching, they are impoverishing their spiritual well-being. Those who, who, who would say that doctrinal preaching is passé are neglecting the fact that this is what God has called us to continue in. We need to know the doctrine of the apostles. And we desperately need to hear doctrine in our preaching. And this continuing as well in breaking of bread. The starting bit, funny how that goes, right? So we're, we're talking about the preaching of the Word and bringing them and baptizing. And now they're continuing on in the preaching of the Word and in the Lord's table. Well, of course, baptism is the way we come in to the Christian faith. And the breaking of bread, the Lord's table, is the way we, we, we continue. It's a means of grace for those who receive it in faith. And finally, in prayers. And that's the one thing, as I said before, we didn't mention this morning, yet that is one of the ordinary means of grace. New measures that are going to work no matter what don't need prayer. Again, that's what Finney said. We spoke about Charles Finney this morning in the Ancients Bench. We've got one. I think perhaps because I left my, my bag there, no one has sat. Well, just consider then this anxious bench. If we believe, as Finney did, that it works on its own, that you can have a revival any time that you want, you, you set up these 
uh, uh, these special uh, new measures, and you put psychological pressure on people to come sit at that bench. Or maybe you, you'll, then you guys need to keep on playing some sort of uh, course over and over and over again until people come and fill that anxious bench. And then finally, we let you off the hook. Well, now, does God need to act in that? No. God doesn't need to act, and everyone knows it. So what's the point then in praying? Why do we need to pray that God would make the anxious bench work? We don't. Nor do we need to pray that God would make any of these new measures work, whatever they might be, whatever their nature, because they make sense to man. They're designed to work on psychological and sociological basis. Any ordinary person in the world could say, I could see how that model works. I remember reading in The Economist magazine, there was a, uh, an analysis of the megachurch movement. And somebody with an MBA was saying, I know exactly how this works. This isn't crazy. This isn't shocking. These people are just being good businessmen. What do you know about that? If that is the case, you don't need to pray about that. If that is the case, God doesn't get the glory, does he? We don't need God if we've got our good business acumen in the way we run the church. But no, these ordinary means of grace, they don't work at all without prayer. If we don't ask the Lord to do it, nothing happens. They are not like the ex opere operato approach. We have, by the way, something like that among some of my Anglican friends in, in the UK. They have rightly chosen to focus on Bible preaching. Praise God for that. They have rejected puppet shows and, and the rest of it. And they've rightly rejected the charismatic movement that says it's all spirit and no word. But they have missed something of the fundamentally supernatural character of the way the word of God works. It is supernatural. And if God does not work on the preacher, and if God does not work on you, the hearer, it doesn't work. It's like, as Calvin says, a dead letter. And so we must continue in prayer as well for these things. Now, if a church has begun well with the ministry of the word and sacrament, and if they've continued in the ministry of the word and sacrament and prayer, what can we expect? Ordinarily, God is going to bless that church with fruit. Verse 47, And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. And that is the good news. The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. You know, um, there's an interesting part of our confession. Confession 25, uh, read in paragraphs 2 and 3, says the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists in all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I read that, it sounded a bit Roman Catholic to me. It didn't sound very Protestant. It didn't sound very evangelical. The idea of outside of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. But what this, what, you know what, the, by the way, the, the uh, proof text of that is? That verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 47. Because the way that the Lord was adding 
was in and through that church. Now, of course, it has the word ordinarily. So God is free not to use these particular means. God is free to act in other ways. But ordinarily, the only way that people come to saving faith is through the church. Now, when we say, what are we looking at as far as a model that we expect that God would bless? I would call this, I I just, tell me what you think, but I would call this reformed pragmatism. It's not exactly a contradiction in terms. You know, in this country we have these great figures of the 18th century. Jonathan Edwards and Benjamin Franklin. Jonathan Edwards, we have this wonderful vision of the harmony of all reality. We have this project to interpret the harmony. We have the use of the ordinary means of grace brought together in this, in this wonderful picture of, a, of, a, of a, the way evangelism and missionary activity and all the rest of it ought to go. All for the glory of God. Every bit of it. And on the other hand, we have Benjamin Franklin. Great scientist, great thinker. But it wasn't anything having to do with the glory of God. It was all pragmatism. It was all that we might have it easier on this world. Lots of people, I understand, 80% of Americans think that his, his, his uh, diktat, God helps those who help themselves, is actually in the Bible. Of course it's not. Well, sadly, I think as a whole, we went the way of Franklin and not Edwards. We became thoroughgoing pragmatists. But I would say that there is one aspect of pragmatism that we could use here, and that is the fact that the ordinary means of grace work. If we are looking around for something that is going to make our church grow, if we are looking around for some model that we want to imitate, we ought to understand that these means that God has appointed, they really actually work. We have undeniable proof of that here in Acts chapter 2. And if they worked here in this poisonous situation, of these people who had only recently crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, and they had shouted, they had added their voice, crucify him. It can work anywhere. That's reformed pragmatism. Now, I do not say that there are things such as harder ground. There are some places in this world that are much harder ground than others. I understand that. I remember leading Christianity Explored, which I understand some of you are doing, in Edinburgh. And by this time, I had not seen, I'd been in the UK for over two years with the military, and I hadn't seen anyone come to faith in Christ. And I was beginning to wonder whether the gospel worked there at all. And then, in this Bible study, I saw this 60-year-old Scottish man come to faith and join the church. And I saw that the gospel works even there. So it's hard ground, yes. But praise God, that man was not the last Praise God that even in harder ground, places are much harder in the UK, God is still bringing to himself people through these means that he's appointed. So those who would want to see real fruit, real and lasting, those who want to experience the power of God. Again, if we, had, if we set in motion some some uh, new measures, you wouldn't be experiencing the power of God. You'd be seeing something that some MBA in the economist can say, I know exactly how that happened. But if you want to see lasting fruit, and if you want to experience the, the almighty power of God, and you continue in the means that God has given. Well, 
just a reminder before we go to our application section that it does not work on its own. It's not automatic. And all of this we remember, as it says in verse 47, God added to them. This is a supernatural work. You know, when uh, J. Gresham Mason was uh, summarizing the situation, what is the difference between Christianity and liberalism? And you could go down any kind of, of rabbit trail to say what the difference is, but he summarized it basically in the, the fact that real Christianity is supernatural. Liberalism, of course, wants to explain everything in natural terms. It wants to explain away the Bible. It wants to explain away the miracles that we see in it. It wants to explain away every little thing to say that it's all natural. And Christianity, though, real biblical Christianity is fundamentally supernatural. And that is what we have when we build the church God's way. It's fundamentally supernatural. Just three applications. It requires the power of God, first of all. These things, the use of these means, it requires the power of God. Referring again to our, our friend Finney with the ancient bench, he says this, a revival is not a miracle, something above the powers of nature. There is nothing in religion beyond the ordinary powers of nature. It consists entirely in the right exercise of the powers of nature. It is just that and nothing else. Just that and nothing else. Well, that is not the case here. God has to act or it doesn't happen. When we pray for these missionaries whom we're sending out, when we pray for one another, when we pray for this church, when we pray for our families, we need to understand it requires the imposition of the almighty, sovereign power of God to make it work. We can be obedient. We can do, be doing the right things. We can have the right forms. We can have sermons. And we can administer the sacraments. But we cannot forget that unless God gives it power through the Holy Spirit, nothing's going to happen at all. That's why we must pray. That's why prayer is so essential. We pray like we mean it. We pray like we know it's the only way that it's going to work. We pray like we don't believe Finney. We pray like we believe Acts chapter 2. And second, it requires boldness. You know, this is not for the faint of heart. That sort of sermon that Peter preached is not for the faint of heart. If you're hoping to be applauded by this world, if you're hoping to be welcomed by the powers that be in this world, this is not for you. Because these ordinary means of grace, as it says throughout Corinthians, we've been going through Corinthians in our, our, our midweek Bible study, these things are foolishness. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to man. Baptism? The Lord's table? There's no power in it. These things are despicable. And if you're going to stand up and use them, if you're going to be part of a church that continues in these things, that's going to require a certain amount of boldness. And that's, by the way, why Peter and John... They said in, in Acts 4.29, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. They had to ask the Lord for it. And when they had prayed, the place where they assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. That's why Paul was constantly asking the people to pray for him in this regard. He says in Ephesians 6.18, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful for this end, 
with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me, he's saying, for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel because he was constantly in danger of that not happening. He was constantly in danger of being cowed into silence and not preaching the whole counsel of God, but he says, pray that doesn't happen. Pray that I'd open my mouth in boldness. Requires boldness. Thirdly and finally, it requires steadfastness. I was saying to Dr. McWilliams before the service began, not every church that begins well ends well. Not every man that begins well ends well. And even in my very brief time, so brief in the ministry thus far, I have seen men who started so well. They had that confidence in God's word to do what it was intended to do. At some point, they lost confidence. They didn't see the explosive growth they were hoping to see. And they start throwing everything at it. They start throwing the kitchen sink at it. Anything they can think of to try and bring people in. Well, we are all sinners. We are all fallible. All these things could happen to us. What we pray for is that we be steadfast in our confidence in the means that God has given. And it's not just the ministers, it's not just the elders, it's the people. Don't be clamoring for something new. Demand of your ministers that they are faithful stewards of the word. That is what is required. Demand of your ministers that they retain and continue in the right way they have been given in the word of God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we see, Lord, that you are going to glorify yourself in the way that you build your church. We know, Lord, that you care not only about the mission, but you care about the means. You care about the means that you're going to use. And Lord God, we pray that you would enable us to start well and to finish well that we would continue steadfastly in these things that you've given to us. And that, Lord, you would indeed add to the church daily those who are being saved. Lord God, we pray that you would be glorified in these things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.